Hi, Journey. Whoa, you ready? Hard to believe, isn't it? I love Christmas time. I love it for our family. I love it for our church. I love Christmas at the Commons. And uh, I just want to get in on a little something that John talked about during that offering bit there, if you'll let me. And that's, uh, it's, it's well and good for you to get yourself to Christmas at the Commons. You know, that's cool. We should celebrate Jesus being born and all that, God putting on skin and, you know, coming and living amongst us, condescending himself to us. That's fantastic. But would you just think, like John was challenging you to think, would you just think about who you might share that experience with? Or just think a layer out from just beyond you and your own family and think about maybe someone in your world who you sharing that Christmas at the Commons worship experience with, that the presentation of the gospel and the invitation to follow Jesus that just might be for this person and share it with them. Get them a ticket and bring them on your arm and uh, it'll be a fantastic time. So uh, encourage you to do just that. I love Christmas time. It's been made especially wonderful this year because we've had the immense privilege, our family has had the immense privilege of having our friend B with us. Uh, this is B. He's from the Democratic Republic of Congo. We met B through some mutual friends. We invited him to come from the Congo and see us, uh, meet our family. He didn't just visit us. He was, for instance, last week visiting President and Mrs. Carter, uh, hung out with them, and uh, he came to see us as well, much more lowly than President and Mrs. Carter, but he's here with us nonetheless. And lots of you know, you're going like, what's the connection? Lots of you know that we've been working for a couple of years now to bring our four adopted daughters home from the DRC to no avail. And uh, there's one bright spot in the midst of that whole midst of darkness, I'll say, that trial. And the bright spot has been B. Because B and his family and his team have been helping us work that situation to a resolution. And we don't today have any great news to report. We are, however, really, really encouraged by B's work for us. And B uh, does more than just help us with our adopted daughters. And so I've invited him here today to talk about his family, his background, some of the fantastic work that they're about in the Democratic Republic of Congo, bringing the kingdom of God and invite us to perhaps share in some of that. So will you please give a very warm welcome to our friend B. Morning. Okay. I'll start by introducing myself and my family. We are kind of a big family. We are eight, not more than uh, Pastor, <laughs> Pastor Brown family. Yeah, we are eight. I'm the second one in my family. I did my studies in South Africa. I have a degree in criminology and sociology. And my dad is a pastor. He's overseeing like a thousand churches in DRC and some in Africa. So I'm also a pastor. I'm leading one of our church in the same city where my dad is in Lubumbashi. So we are, I'm, uh, I'm leading like over 600 people in, the, in, the, uh, in that church. So Beside the church, beside being a pastor, we have, I'm having a ministry that we are dealing with women who have been trafficked. So we are like kind of saving them from slavery, from prostitution. We give them a shelter and a house to stay. 
So all that started somewhere. When I finished my study in South Africa, I didn't want to stay, in, uh, I didn't want to, to come to my country in Congo. I wanted to stay in, my, in South Africa and do my life there. But I was not having that piece of heart. Something was missing. So I was asking God, what's wrong? So one day when I went back home, I felt that piece of heart. Then I was a bit confused. Then I said, I said to God, what do you want me to do? Then God told me, just sit, I'll show you what to do. Then one day on TV, I was watching TV, I saw news. I saw some girls being trafficked, being raped, being beaten. Then I said to myself, that can be my, my sister. She can be my cousin. She can be someone close to me. Then God told me that I want you to do this ministry. I want you to help these people. I want you to give them hope. So I didn't know what to do. Then I said to myself, how am I going to start? I don't know someone. I never done it before. Then God said, just do it and I'll show you the next step. Then I started. I went to see my dad. I spoke to him. He told me, if it's really God who spoke to you, he's going to provide a way. He's going to show you what to do. Then I went to the TV. I was talking on TV. Then next day, I saw people coming. I saw lawyers. I saw doctors. I saw psychologists. I saw many people coming. They said, we're going to make a team, and we are, we are going to help you, and you don't have to pay us. We are going to do it for free. And we started the job, and we have been saving like many, many women coming. Because per day, we are receiving like 15 women who have been trafficked. So what we do, we take them in a process of one week. During that one week, they, are, they, they go into counseling because of the problem that they've been through. We teach them how to read and to write. We teach them some skills, how to sell in the market, because after that, pro, after that training, they can be able to make some money so that they can live. So besides that, we saw that that was not enough. We created an orphanage. Because there, was like, there were like a lot of people, a lot of kids in the town of Lubumbashi have been abandoned. So most of them, they are exposed to traffickers. Because according to the news, the traffickers, they, can, they, are, getting the, they are getting girls from 12 years old, even 11. So we decided to take all those kids, to put them somewhere, to provide shelter for them, food, school, and somewhere where they can sleep. So I know that it's a, a one week for the training. It's, it's, it's not that, that big, but it's the least that we can do instead of doing nothing. We can start from something, then we can grow up. We can go to two weeks, six, even six months, but we have to start somewhere. That's where we started. So to me, I say to myself, as a Christian, to live is to save. 
We don't live just for ourselves. We live also for other people. And that's the mission that Jesus came on earth with. He came to save. So I want to encourage you, all of us, to go out there. There's like some picture of the orphan, orphans. Just try to pick something. Try to give hope to someone. Because that is the mission we came for. We, don't, we, don't, we didn't just believe to go to heaven. We have to start it from here. And then we can finish it in heaven. God bless you. And one more thing, I'll need your prayers. Don't forget to put us in prayers every day. Absolutely. What B is about with his family and the team he's built uh, brilliantly reflects the light of Christ in a very, very dark place. I've been in a lot of countries around the world, and I've not ever been in a place as dark as the Democratic Republic. Like, you just step off the plane and you just, you just feel it. And they're bringing the hope of Jesus Christ into these incredibly dark corners. And uh, he'll be out in the lobby with, um, he calls my wife Miss Dana. So I've taken to calling her Miss Dana. He'll be out in the lobby at a table with Miss Dana when we're done. Uh, they'd be delighted to meet with you and help get you connected perhaps with all they're about. Thank you so much, B. Have you ever noticed that when a spotlight shines on a very dark stage, kind of like this, in a very dark room, if we were to turn off all the lights in here, have you ever noticed how prominent the darkness around that one singular light is? Have you ever like thought about that? There's like this boundary that's been created by that beam of light, this boundary between this really, really brilliant light and outside of that is sort of this enveloping darkness that surrounds it. It's almost as if there's this tangible line between the light that's right here in that beam and then the darkness that's just outside. Have you ever picked up on that before? And in spiritual terms, what we know is that in that illustration, in that picture, the circle of light in a very dark room has been created by the light of God himself, hasn't it? By the light of God that is very penetrating, very pure, often very hard, very revealing, always guiding light of God himself. And in the book of First John, John sort of imagines for us this model, this picture of the Christian life that most closely resembles that circle of light on an otherwise entirely darkened stage. And the boundary that exists, the almost tangible boundary that exists between being inside that light and being outside of that light in the enveloping darkness. And here's how he puts it in verses 5 through 7 of 1 John 1. This is the message we heard from Jesus. It's not coming from anywhere else. This is the message we heard from Jesus himself and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth but if we are living in the light as God is in the light then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
And he gets right at the crux, the core of what this light is all about. It's God and the light of God that we who follow Jesus Christ are meant to walk in, find that our lives in him are knit together by God's love and God's forgiveness and God's redemption and by nothing else. Nothing else. And walking and living in the light of Christ is incredibly humbling. It is so incredibly humbling. But as well, it's healing and renewing and invigorating, and you don't want to be anywhere else except there in the light of God. And I hear people ask questions over and over again. How do you know that you know God or not? How do you know that God loves you or not? How do you know that you're living at peace with God? How do you know that you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven? How do you know that your experience with God is real? Fantastic questions. Those are the questions that I hope every person on planet earth wrestles really hard with. And with the time we have together today, we're going to look back at this bit of 1 John. Because in this bit in 1 John, he identifies some of the marks, some of the indicators, now check this out, of people who don't really know God. They don't really know the answers to those questions, though they think that they know the answers to those questions. And you know what that means then? It means that John's talking to religious people. He's not talking about irreligious people. He's not talking about people outside of the church. He's not talking about atheistic people who are opposed to God and so. He's talking to religious people. He's not saying, here's how you know that atheists don't know God. He's talking about religious people. And one of the very hardest lessons some people will ever learn, and tragically, this is the greatest tragedy, the greatest tragic tragedy on planet Earth, What some people never learn is that it is entirely possible for a person to be very, very incredibly religious even, very, very spiritual, and yet not know God at all in a real, tangible, life-changing sense. I heard a guy say it like this. He said, have you ever considered that Jesus' crucifixion was a joint venture between both secular and religious establishments? Have you ever thought about that? The crucifixion, the killing, the murder of Jesus Christ was a joint venture between secular and religious establishments. And I tend to believe that that's true, which means then that religion is just as much, hear me, an enemy of Jesus as atheism or secularism or paganism or you name it, ism. What are they then? What are the marks, what are the indicators of someone who doesn't really know God but might think that they do? Let's look back at the text again because this is where it comes out of. It's not coming out of here, it's coming out of the text. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say that we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What are they? What are the indicators of someone who thinks they know God, but they don't really know God? Here's the first one. You don't know God if you continue to live in the dark. 
John just says it. He just lays it right on the line. You don't really know God if you continue to live in the dark. And that word dark in this instance, as John uses it, is a euphemism. It's a synonym for something. What is it a synonym for? Sin. That's exactly right. Darkness equals sin. Now John's not saying, please hear me, he's not saying that a person who doesn't know God if they ever sin, he's not saying that at all. That would mean that no one but Jesus then really knows God. We're all disqualified. We're all out if that's what he's saying. John himself would be disqualified if that's what he means. Instead, he's saying, look, a person doesn't truly know God if we, when we, willfully and defiantly plunge headlong, intentionally into sin. Like this. You know it's wrong to do X, and yet you do it anyway. God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. And the spiritual darkness that John's talking about there is certainly sin, but he's referring to the sort of moral kind of darkness, injustice, hypocrisy, hatred, bitterness, unfaithfulness, impurity, and on and on and on we could go. He's revealing for us, John, is that there's no way that a person can say that they love God. God who is capital L, light. The pure, hard, revealing, guiding light. People cannot say that they love God, the light, and continue to live in that kind of moral darkness. They're incongruent. And they're incongruent Because the kind of transformation, the kind of change that comes from crossing the line of faith in Jesus Christ, crossing over from darkness into light that is God, that kind of transformation is always accompanied by an entirely new spirit that loves the light, can't get enough of the light, give me the light. In that vein, King David of Israel said it this way, Psalm chapter 19, starting in verse 8. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great Sin. The commands of the Lord are right. They bring joy to the heart, King David says. And that's the kind of thing that a person who walks and lives and dwells in the light of God thinks and says and believes and lives. And I think it's a great checkpoint for self-reflection for all of us. Asking ourselves a question like, do I find those statements to be true of me? But the law of the Lord is a delight. Do I find that to be true of me? Or do I find them to be burdensome? Do I find them to be sort of cramping my style? Is that what I want to be able to say about the unbelievable transforming effect of living out full on in the light of God? No more darkness. I want to live full out, full on in the light of God. 
And there's a bunch of ways that people who think they know God but still live in the darkness that John's talking about here in this text. Maybe you've heard some of these before. People say, I believe in Jesus, but I'm still hanging on to my old ways of living. Ever heard that before? Do me a favor if you would. Would you reach into the chair pocket in front of you and you grab out one of these info cards? Just grab one. I promise I'm not going to ask you to sign up for anything, okay? Really, I, I promise. I want to show you something. I want you to look at the front of that card, if you will. I want you to look about middle of the card, halfway down or so. It says this line. Third, there's three little check boxes there. It says, today I recently put my faith in Jesus as my, what? Savior. I acknowledge him as Lord, and then in parentheses it says, boss of my life, and I yield to his authority. Folks, understand that that right there is the very essence of everything that it means to believe in Jesus Christ, distilled down to a handful of words in black and white. That's it right there. Some of you are going like, why are you showing this to me? Because there's times, maybe you've had this experience where I've had conversations with people where they've said something like, well, I've put my faith in Jesus as my savior, but I haven't done that boss thing. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've even been a person who's said that before. And the question that always goes off in my mind is like, whoa, what's going on here? How is this transaction being made right here? Jesus as savior, not as boss. Well, I'll tell you what's happening there is they're picking and choosing the parts of Jesus that they like. And they're leaving the less desirable bits of him quite behind, aren't they? It's almost as if some people who you have those conversations with, they see Jesus like a great big buffet line. Like a Las Vegas on the strip, awesome kind of buffet. I'm not, not, not Golden Corral. I call it Golden E. Coli. Not Golden E. Coli. Sorry if it's your favorite restaurant. But some people treat Jesus like he's this enormous, delectable, elaborate buffet. And some people try to come through the great big Jesus buffet line and they take really big, heaping servings of heaven. And I'll take that all day long. Really big spoonfuls of abundant life, I'll take that. They get to the blessing place where all the blessings are and they're just like, man, I want to pile those on mounds and mounds and mounds of blessings. And lots of people, they try to skip right over the servings of making Jesus your boss. The parts where Jesus says, come and die. To gain your life, you must lose your life. They're like, whoa, going to rush right past that section. Where's the eclairs? But please hear me. Jesus is not some kind of buffet where you get to pick and choose what of him you want and what of him you'll just leave behind. It's why we say it the way we say it on that card. It's why we say it the way we say it when someone stands up here and invites anybody to cross the line of faith in Jesus at the conclusion of a worship gathering like this. Because understand this, believing in Jesus Christ is just one thing. I put my faith in him as my savior. I acknowledge him as the boss of my life. I yield to his authority. I yield to him. He's my boss. So you see, it's kind of like this, and this is a bit of a harsh way to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. When a person crosses the line of faith in Jesus Christ, they're saying, I quit working for the devil. I quit working for the devil. He's been my boss. He's been in charge. He's been calling the shots in my life. I'm changing employers. 
I'm not working for the devil anymore. I serve Jesus. I follow Jesus. I've gone from living in the darkness to walking and living all in the light. And Jesus is my savior as well. He is my Lord, my boss. And I do whatever it is that he invites and challenges and calls and nudges and urges, however you want to say it, me to do. Because there's no belief in Jesus as savior without turning and walking away from your old way of living. There isn't any. Just to take this a level further, let me illustrate the absurdity of that by being a bit absurd. I want you to imagine that you're married. Those of you who are, you don't have to imagine very hard, do you? And I want you to imagine that you're married, imagine saying to your spouse, you know, I really, really want to be married to you. I really, really want to enjoy all the benefits that come from being married to you, you know, like getting to file our taxes jointly and those kinds of fantastic things like that. There's amazing benefits to being married to you, and so I want all that, but, but I also want to keep up all of my romantic relationships with all the people that I dated before you and I met and married. Whoa. You're cringing, right? As you, well, you should be. That is not going to go well. Even if you just said, oh, okay, I realize that isn't sound very good. Let me turn up the temperature here just a little bit and say something like, now don't you worry, dear. You're still going to be my number one. That doesn't help that much, right? It's still not going to go well because I hope that your spouse is going to look at you and say, I don't want to just be your number one. I'm either your only one or this is over, right? And it's the exact same thing with Jesus Christ. Truly knowing God is about Jesus as Savior and boss, both, all one thing, And in the same way, some people think they know God, yet they have a pretty fast and loose relationship with this little thing called sin. They want to have sort of one foot out in the light and one foot back in the dark, and they sort of straddle this untenable place. It's stuff that happens a lot around the church. Christians say things like, you know, I know I know what God says about the whole living together before you're married thing. I get that God's not favorable about that, but we're going to get married soon. We've got to ring in a date. We're close. It's like one foot in the light and it's one foot in the dark. How about this one? I know it's wrong to cheat on my taxes or download movies from the web or sample the grapes from the grocery store. I know it's wrong, but no one's perfect, right? Sort of shrug your shoulders. No one's perfect. A fast and loose relationship with sin. How about this one? I know it's wrong to get drunk on Saturday night, sleep with the person I'm dating, but at least, look, I'm here. I'm in church, pastor, on Sunday morning. How about this one? I know it's wrong to gossip and slander and malign someone's character, but just listen to what so-and-so did to such and such. And And please hear me. God's quite intolerant. When we attempt to opt out of the things in the Bible that we don't agree with, He's quite intolerant of that because embracing him means embracing all of him, the entirety of who he is and what he stands for and what he calls us to. 1 John chapter 2 verse 4 says it like this, if someone claims I know God but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. Not my words, the word of God. 
And so you see Jesus being boss, being Lord, being savior of your life means that you don't have to agree with him before you submit to him because simply he's right and he's right about everything. And in the places where we and Jesus disagree, well, he's still right and I change. I do it differently because he's right and I submit to him and I do it his way. And the temptation here would be to misunderstand me and think that this is all about being perfect. Brian, you're telling me I have to, no, it's not that. Not at all. Because even with Jesus as boss, even with living in the light, guess what? We fall, we trip, we stumble, whatever you want to say, it happens. But when we do, we say, God, please help scoop me up out of this mess and reset me on my feet back in the light because we carry this unwavering resolve as followers of Jesus Christ to trust him, obey him, follow him, pursue him, no matter the cost because he's right. He's right. The last one we're gonna tackle today is this idea that some people have prayed a prayer to ask Jesus to come into their life and nothing has changed for them. Nothing in their life has ever changed. In 2011, someone did a survey that revealed about half of all Americans say that they've prayed that kind of prayer at some point in their life. Half of all Americans have prayed that kind of prayer, inviting Jesus into their life at some point. Yet you dig into the statistics and half of them have no regular presence of any kind in church. And as well, they have lifestyles and worldviews that in no way differ from those outside of Christianity. Do you hear that? It's alarming. And it isn't fun news to hear. It's definitely not fun news to report. But it's also incredibly revealing and insightful. And actually should press us to ask the question, do I really, here's the question, do I really know God? Do I really know God or am I still living in the dark? Do I really know God the way I think I know God or am I still living in the dark? And please understand that living in the light of God, it isn't so much about praying a prayer at a worship gathering or wherever it was that you prayed it. As much as it is about assuming, check this out, assuming a posture of submission and repentance toward Christ. A posture of submission and repentance toward Christ. Let me ask it this way. Did you repent and believe on Jesus as your savior and boss? Or did you one day just huck up a prayer asking God to take you to heaven when you die because the other place sounds really terrible and nobody wants to go there? There's a difference. A really, really significant difference. And the difference is in those two words, conviction and repentance. And how many people, lots of Christians even think of repentance like a trip to the woodshed where God just spanks you for your sin. Right? Lots of Christians hold that view, but that's not it. That isn't conviction and that isn't repentance. Instead, as I heard one person put it, repentance is like a bath in which all of the darkness is washed off of you and you are bathed in the light that is Jesus Christ, his pure, hard, revealing, guiding light. He bathes you in it. 
And when you're bathed in light, guess what? There is no room for darkness there. No room whatsoever. And if you've had that experience, you know it's an incredible experience. And part of what makes it so incredible is that in the midst of it, God, it's God himself, your heavenly father, who is washing away our sin. He is washing away the darkness all in love. Nothing but love. That's his motivation. His singular motivation is his love toward you, which is the very reason that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, his only son, mind you, to be born an infant, to live as a man, to die a criminal's death on the cross because he loves you so much more than any earthly father or mother has ever loved their child. And if you have children, you can hardly imagine that. But he does. You. No matter how dark it is in the places that you're living right now, no matter how deep it seems, he loves you just that much. For those who truly know God, repentance is actually quite a sweet thing. Because it isn't at all about being spanked. Instead, it's quite all about us coming home. Us coming home. Us moving further and further and further out of the darkness and into the light, the radiant light, the brilliant light of God and staying there and living there and loving it there. And that's difficult. That's very difficult. Because very often when people are exposed to the light of God, what happens? It like hurts their eyes, right? Ever come out of a movie theater on a bright summer day and you've been in this really dark room for a couple hours watching a movie and then you go outside and you're like, oh, oh my gosh, just, I, you just want to stay in there, right? Because it hurts. And that's what happens with lots and lots of people. They just want to scurry back into the darkness because the light is so piercing. The dark is real comfortable when you're used to it. But God says, uh-uh, don't, don't. Whatever you do, don't. Don't run back into the dark. Stay in the light. Live in the light. There's hope and there's life and there's truth and there's newness in the light of God. Why would anyone want to be anywhere else except in the light? Live in the light. God is the light. And he says, come on. Come on. I invite you to take your stuff if you would and just close your eyes, just set your stuff aside and close your eyes and bow your heads if you would. And I just invite you right now to move into a posture of hearing and reflecting with the Lord. Maybe you just ask him, God, what is it that you're saying to me about how well I know you? Do I really know you? And I'm not asking that question to like stir up a bunch of fear and a bunch of people like, oh gosh, do I really know God? That, that, that isn't it. It's just an examination. It's a reflective moment where the Lord can break in and speak truth and speak life and speak clarity 
because I don't want anybody to suffer from the tragedy of thinking they know God, playing the religious church game. And then coming to the end of their life and realizing, I didn't really know God at all. I don't want that for anybody. And so would you just press in with the Lord, Lord, Do I love your light more than I love the darkness of my sin? Do I know you in the way that you ask me, invite me, and call me, and urge me to know you? You just hear from him and reflect on that with him. perhaps for some today this day is in part about you believing on Jesus as savior and boss both the singular light of the world the one who invites you into him into his light out of the darkness of our sin and if that's you today you can take the step of crossing that line of faith in him by praying with me. Now get this. There's nothing magical or mystical about this prayer. It is not the prayer that saves anyone. It is the posture of the heart. It's about repentance and submission, very simply. Repentance and submission. And these words simply convey that posture of repentance and submission. And if that's you, I just invite you to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I've been living in a lot of dark corners and a lot of dark places. And Jesus, honestly, I've pretty well come to love the dark. I don't want to live in the dark anymore, Jesus. I want to live in your light. I need you to save me, Jesus. Will you come to me and will you be my savior and will you be my boss? You are what I need, Jesus. I don't need anything else. And so here's my life, all of me. Here's all my gratitude. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for rising from the dead. That makes the light of your life even possible. Thank you, Jesus. Here's my life. And if that's you, If you're someone who's stepping across the line of faith in Jesus Christ today from darkness to light, the light of Christ, that's the biggest decision you will ever make. It's it. Everything else in this world rises and falls on that very decision, and it's so significant. It's so momentous that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision. It's a private moment. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Nobody's looking around this room. If you're crossing over from darkness to the light of Jesus Christ and his salvation today, would you just right now be really bold and really brave? Would you just slip your hand up real high and would you lock eyes with me and let me agree with you in your decision to, yeah, right there. Let me agree with you in your decision to follow Jesus. Keep your hand, yeah, both of you, way to go. 
Yes. You and you and you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Don't be shy. There's a big yeah. You right there. Yes. And in the back. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Right here. Absolutely. Yes. No more. No more dark. No more dark. And there, yes, absolutely, yes. Way to go. Jesus, we just say thank you. There, yeah, I see it. Yeah, sorry. Yes, right there. Way to go. Jesus, we say thank you so much for these who are crossing over from dark to light, changing employers today. They're trusting you, following you, obeying you, serving you, right, starting right now. And we just love that, and we love what you're doing, and we love what you're about in all of us, Jesus. And I ask Jesus that we would all, we would wrestle with that question, do I really, truly know God the way I think I know God? That we wouldn't just be playing games or pretending or trying to clean up real nice because we think that's what you want, but we would be very, very real with you, God. And that you would draw us more and more and more and more into your light. Help us stand and stick and live in the light that is you. Because you're right and you're true and you're perfect and you're holy. And God, we want to be more like you. 